What an incredible game we just witnessed. The Celtics defeat the Bucks 108-95. To force a Game 7, there will be a Game 7. Crazy, crazy stuff. But also, earlier today, Djokovic defeats Felix Auger Elysium uh, in straight sets, 7-5, 7-6. He will be the number one ranked player going into Roland Garros. Good-ass good match. We'll talk about that, too. My boy Nadal got hurt, losing to Shapovalov. Um, just sad. His foot keeps being a problem. He started off hot, beating Shapovalov 6-1 in the first set. And then his foot started giving him problems 7-5, 6-2. He loses the last two sets. And we'll see how he does in Roland Garros if he's even going to participate. We'll see if his foot gets better in a week's time. But it's looking rough for Rafa Nadal. Alcaraz wins Madrid Open. 19 years old. He's won two Masters 1000. You can't say enough good things about Alcaraz. He is the future, the president of tennis, and he's just incredible. The NFL schedule has been released. There's a lot of teams that have five primetime games. A lot of good games to look forward to. The Chargers also had like a funny-ass schedule release video that we'll talk about real quick. And Brady signs a 10-year, $375 million contract with Fox to be their commentator analyst once he hangs it up. Ridiculous numbers. Brady always, you know, being a savvy businessman, he has his next venture already set. Jokic wins MVP. I thought it should have been Giannis, but it is what it is. Jokic wins his second MVP. He now has more MVPs than Kobe. He has more MVPs than Shaq. But it is what it is. Shout out to Jokic. He did have a great season. By no means is he not, like, deserving of being an MVP, but it's just a little off to me. But all of that on this episode of the Hard to Handle Sports Podcast. Let's get started. The Celtics force a game seven, 108 to 95. They go into Milwaukee. They go into the champions home court and force a game seven. Shout out to Boston. But shout out to Jason Tatum, 46 points, nine rebounds, four assists in an elimination game. That's that's some crazy stuff. That's some that's some Clay Thompson game six type of numbers. Um, the rest of the team, Jalen Brown put up 22. Marcus Smart had 21. He had a crazy first quarter. That um, really propelled them, really set the tone for the rest of the game. He had a, like a nice step back dagger two. It looked like a three, but it was a two in the fourth quarter too. He had a good game. Al Horford, his numbers don't look that ridiculous. Ten rebounds, three assists, two points. But if you watch the game, he had two crucial blocks in the fourth quarter when the Bucks were making a run, trying to get back into the game. So he had he had he had a good game. Grant Williams, um, decent game. Derek White, nine points, five rebounds, two assists. But I think seven of his points came as the half was ending in the second half. He had a lot of good plays, too. He had some timely rebounds, and those nine points were were big nine points. So overall, good performance by the Celtics to force a game seven. Like I said, Jason Tatum, Jason Tatum put that team on his back. He is that guy. He's a superstar. He has arrived. Shout out to Jason Tatum. Honestly, I didn't think they were... I thought the, that Giannis and the Bucks were going to show their championship pedigree. They're going to show why they're the champions. They're going to close it out at six at home and, you know, just be done with the Celtics. But Celtics have heart, and Jason Tatum is that guy because Giannis did his thing too. 44 points, 20 rebounds, 6 assists, a 40-20 game and a closeout game, and it wasn't enough because the rest of his team was just cheeks. Drew Holiday, 17, Pat Connaughton, 14, and then the next has six, Brooke Lopez and Wesley Matthews. Terrible game, four points. He just, Giannis just needed a little bit of help, and he, he didn't get it from his team. This 
these are the type of games that you really miss Middleton. Every time Giannis went to the bench for a little bit of rest, it looked like the Bucks had no idea what they were running. They had no idea what their offense was. I wanted to see Drew Holiday be a little more aggressive, but he wasn't. And, you know, that's we can't really expect Drew Hall- too much from Drew Holiday. Like he, he gets his points. He gets his timely buckets. But to run a whole offense through him is, is not his game. And, uh, yeah, Coach Bud is going to have to figure out something for Game 7 because it can't just be Giannis. Giannis has dropped 40. I think he's dropped three 40-point games this series. And it, it hasn't been enough. So they got to find something else. They got to... You know, try to get Wesley Matthews going. Drew, Drake, Grayson Allen's just having a terrible series. Um, his shooting is, has been terrible. And every time his plus and minus, if you look at his plus and minus, it's like they're like plus 10 when he sits and they were like minus like 18 when he was playing. Some some crazy like fluctuation. But this like this takes nothing away from the Celtics. Jason Tatum, I think the takeaway from this game is that Jason Tatum is that dude. He's a superstar. He's he's ascending. His arrow's pointing all the way up. And now a game seven in Boston is going to be electric. Honestly, I'm not too hot. I want, I do want the Bucks to win this series, and I I they are they are my pick to go all the way and repeat. But I'm not mad about a game seven. This series has been probably the best series of the playoffs so far. So it's fitting that it's going to seven games. I, I honestly, it's it's, it's going to be crazy game seven. Like, I'm just thinking about it. Like, do the Bucks have enough to go into the Boston and win a game seven without Middleton? I don't know. Especially, especially if Jason Tatum plays like he did today. And they have overall, the Celtics do have the better team. They have more, way more pieces, smart Jalen Brown, Tatum, Derek White could give you some production. Al Horford is a beast. Um, he, he seems to have found like the fountain of youth. He's like, a great defender now all of a sudden he can move his feet again it's crazy what going back to the Celtics has done for Al Horford but the Bucks do have the best player and his John is so is he going to be able to just muscle and carry the team into into the next round into the Eastern Conference Finals where the Heat are waiting for them I don't know because like the gap between Tatum and Antetokounmpo it's it's just, it's big it's he's like a two-time MVP and Tatum you know his arrow is pointing up but it's big but I feel like Tatum is closing that gap so if Tatum is closing that gap and the Celtics have the better roster the better team especially now that Middleton's out it's it's kind of hard to to put some put you know put some money on on the Bucks or stick with my pick especially with the Celtics playing at home but I think I still got to go with the Bucks. I think the Bucks find a way in Game Seven to win it. Giannis is going to have another great game. He's going to be great from the from the foul line again, like he was today, like twelve for thirteen and some crazy stuff, some crazy like numbers. I don't know. I just think Giannis is going to find a way to win Game Seven in Boston. But man, Game Six was electric. The Celtics must have had you know those those thoughts creeping into their head, like, damn, are we going to blow another thirteen point lead like we did in Game Five? And to their credit, they fought back. Uh, the Bucks made it a four-point game, and the Celtics responded, and they were able to close out the game. So, Game Seven is going to be electric. It's going to be it's going to be fun. I'm looking. I'm hella looking forward to it. Don't bother me on Saturday or Sunday, whenever the game is at. I think it's Sunday. Yeah, don't bother me on Sunday. I'm gonna be watching that game. Djokovic defeats Felix Auger Aliassime seven five seven six to punch his ticket into the semifinals of the Masters in Rome. 
Shout out to Djokovic. With this, he guarantees that he's going to be the number one seed at Roland Garros, which is big because, you know, everyone always wants to be the number one seed. He's going to stay as the number one player. If he would have lost, Medvedev would have moved into that number one ranking in the ATP Tour. But Djokovic takes care of business, defeating FAA in straight sets. Shout out to Djokovic. It looks like he's damn near at the top of his game again. And it was expected for him to take, you know, a little bit to get back into rhythm, get back into into shape, get back into, you know, the level that we've seen him end last year with, you know, him not being able to play the Australian Open, not being able to get into the U.S. for the U.S. swing with the Miami Open and and uh, Indian Wells. And we've seen Djokovic, you know, lose to some players that he normally wouldn't lose to. We saw him lose the final of the Serbian Open to Rublev. And you were you, every time you see him play, you were like, okay, that this is not the Djokovic that we're accustomed to. He's obviously still getting back into form. He's obviously still trying to find his rhythm. Like, this ain't it. Like, eventually he'll come. Right now in Rome, in the Italian Open, in the Italian uh, Open, he looks like, you know, he's finding his level. Like, Felix should have his head held high because he definitely played good game. There wasn't too many, like, mistakes that he had. He had an all-around solid game. And Djokovic was there for the occasion. Um, even when he was up 5-2 and he allowed FAA to come back and make it a 5-5 set in the second set, it, it looked like he he focused again, made it 6-5, 6-6, and then in the tie break, he just, he just showed his experience, he showed his class, and beat Felix pretty convincingly in the tie break 7-1. But it was it was just a great match of tennis. Like like I said, FAA, he had a great start to the twenty twenty two season, and then he had a considerable dip. Where I was like, oh man, I just I just said you're gonna have to do great things in twenty twenty two, and now it looks like you're regressing, and it looks like your season's going you know is going to shit kind of. But it looks like FAA has found his level again, and he really showed it today. Like he he was serving. Really, really good. His forehand looked nice. His backhand looked solid. Djokovic kept kept pressuring him, pressuring him with his forehand, and for the most part, it responded. But Djokovic, like I said, he's playing at a high level. He's it looks like he's back to that number one, and I do have him winning the winning Rome. It looks like he should. Um, he does play uh, Rude next, and Rude is a clay specialist, and he's had a very solid season so far too. So it's going to be a very entertaining semifinals. And on the other side, it's Sasha Zverev versus TC Paz. And they've played, you know, numerous times. Sasha Zverev just uh, beat him in the semifinals of Madrid. So we'll see how that goes. But I think Djokovic should be the overwhelming favorite to beat Rude and then beat either Sasha or TC Paz. And it's just good to see Djokovic getting to those levels. You know, he lost to to some players that you normally wouldn't see him lose to. And even the loss to Rublev, like Rublev is a great player, but I don't think, especially in his home country of Serbia, I don't think a lot of people had Rublev beating Djokovic, but Djokovic was barely warming up, was barely getting back into rhythm. So it's understandable why he lost to Rublev, but I think now he's really getting back into form and we're seeing the best Djokovic. And it's good for him because Roland Garros is a week away. And he's the defending champion, and Alcaraz is going to be there. We'll see what version of Nadal is going to be there. But definitely, it looks like Djokovic is getting back into that number one 
number one ranking form that we've been accustomed to. So shout out Djokovic. Shout out Felix, too. I think he had a great Rome, great tournament at the Italian Open. And he should have his held, his head held high. Um, losing to Djokovic is it's not a bad thing at all. It's like, it's Djokovic. It is what it is. You played a great match. You showed your heart. I was hoping for a third set, but it is what it is. But while Djokovic seems to have found his form, seems to be hitting his stride at the perfect time ahead of Roland Garros, the same can't be said for Nadal. Nadal, who's coming back from that rib injury he had at Indian Wells, now it seems like his foot is bothering him again. He got to the round of 16 in the Italian Open in Rome, and he looked good. He 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 was playing against Shapovalov. He was up 6-1 in the first set. It looked like Nadal, vintage Nadal and Clay. It looked like he was going to coast to a victory. We're going to see him go into the round of eight. And then it's, it seemed like his foot just started bothering him. He couldn't move. He was There was clearly a limp on him. And after that, Shapovalov, obviously a quality tennis player, you know, blood in the water, took took advantage of Nadal's injury. And don't want to take anything away from Shapovalov. He had a great tournament, too. Beat Nadal 7-5, 6-2 in the last two sets and eliminated Nadal from, from Rome. And now, as a Nadal fan, as just a fan of tennis, it's just like, damn, that foot is really, like, chronic. It's a chronic pain. It's a chronic injury, and it's it seems like it's not gonna it's never gonna go away. Nadal even hinted at retirement after you know more problems with his foot. He said it's not an injury; it's like some chronic thing that he he has to deal with for his life. And that sucks, man. It sucks because Nadal, like he fights through injuries like nobody else, and he's such a great player. And you want to see him compete at Roland Garros, where he's won numerous. I think he's won like fourteen. French Opens is just ridiculous. Like the amount of success he's had at Roland Garros, it's really been his masters. His, I mean, his major. Like he, he reigned supreme over everybody in that tournament. And I was looking forward to him going into Roland Garros with a good form. Especially once, once he hurt his ribs, it was like, damn. Hopefully, he's able to come back and be in good shape for Roland Garros. And now his foot is flaring up and. It just doesn't seem like even if he does play, which I think he will play, it doesn't seem like he's going to have the best of tournament just because that foot is really bothering him. And if he doesn't have the best of tournament, like how much time is he going to take off? Is it going to be like last year where the French Open was like pretty much his last tournament? I think he played Washington and then that was it. He called it for the year. And then we saw him, you know, go on that run to start this year. Like what what does the future hold for Nadal? And it, it's it's sad. It's, it's As a tennis fan, it's like... Was the 22-0 start that we saw him start the season with, was that the last great thing that we're going to remember from Nadal? Because it just seems like these injuries are starting to pile up more consistently. Like, he's always going to have that foot injury, and we just hope that, you know, that foot doesn't bother him consistently or, like, there's enough gaps where we're able to enjoy his tennis. And then if there's other injuries between those foot injuries like the ribs it just seems like it's too much start stop start stop start stop and at some point like is that just gonna get the best in the doll like is, he, is it even worth it at some point like if you only have like six months to play before your foot starts bothering you and then between those six months there's another rib injury there's something else that keeps you from just enjoying the time that your foot gives you i don't know it's sad to think about it but you know it's something that becomes more more real and more real the more that foot keeps bothering him 
And then I also think about changing sports. I think about um, Dirk Nowitzki, and he's come out and said after retirement that he wishes, um, he kind of thinks of the last two years that he played basketball were worth it because his knees and his, like, his legs are just bothering him so much post-retirement. Post like, he, he wonders, like, is it worth it? Was it worth it? Should I have called it maybe two years earlier? Because now I want to play with my kids and my my legs are just not holding up. They're not they're not you know allowing me to do the things that I want to do post retirement. And it's kind of sad to think about Djokovic. I mean not Djokovic, uh, Nowitzki talk about that after his NBA career and just you know debate if the last two years of his career were worth it. If he should have you know maybe called it a little bit earlier so he was able to really enjoy the rest of his life. Because sometimes we forget like for us it seems like their career is their whole life. But it's really a very small part of their career. Like, yeah, sometimes these players play for a long, long time. And we're able to enjoy them for 16, 20 years, 20, 22 years. But, you know, if if, if God permits them, obviously they want to live uh, until they're old, old, you know, 60, 70, 80. They want to they want to live a long, healthy life. So if, if they, you know, risk the rest of their lives for those 15 years that they play whatever sport they play, you know these these guys are retiring 35 to 40 years old like that's still very very young that's still like you still got your whole second second half of your life remaining that you got to think about so that's what i think about with nadal every time his foot becomes a problem is like should he keep risking it should he keep playing like obviously as a tennis fan i love nadal i would enjoy i kind of i i wish he he would keep playing cuz i like i want to see him at a major i want to go to the us open and see him I want to go to the French Open and see him. You know, I want to travel the world and see Nadal play. But is it worth it? Like, is it worth risking the second half of his career, of his life for the foot? Like, does he not want to, you know, I know he's a soccer fan. Does he not want to kick the ball around with his kids? I know he, he has a tennis academy in Spain. I think in Mallorca, does he not want to be able to be able to move when he gets older and, you know, be able to play and teach the kids and maybe even be a coach like his uncle? There's a lot of things he has to consider, and hopefully for him, everything goes good, and he's able to play, and his foot doesn't nag him post-retirement, but it's something to consider, especially when you have, like, you know, I know it's not the same sport, but Dirk Nowitzki talking about his knees, not letting him do the things that he wants to do post-retirement, it's just something to think about, but hopefully Nadal is able to, you know, use this last, this week to recover, hopefully he's able to do something to his foot. And we're able to see somewhat the best version of Nadal at Roland Garros. Because, you know, Djokovic is going to be there. Alcaraz is going to be there. The present and the future are going to be there, basically. And the past, which has been all of Nadal's career, basically, at Roland Garros. He owns Roland Garros. I just hope that he's able to be there to, you know, put put on a great performance, put on a show for, the, for those fans in Paris and around the world. But... Hopefully Nadal's there and hopefully he's able to give us a good performance. And if his foot is really that bad, hopefully, you know, he has the courage to just call it. Just call it. Just enjoy the second half of your life, man, if it's that bad. But hopefully, as a Nadal fan, everything's good. He'll just massage it, you know, maybe put a little needle somewhere and he'll be able to play at Rolling Girls. But with Nadal looking like he's, you know, at the last stage of his career, the sun is, set, is setting on his career. Spain has a new champion to look forward to for the next 15, 20 years, and his name is Alcaraz. 
what a what a monster he's he's not just the future he's the present too he's having a great 2022 2022 year and he just added to it winning the madrid open winning it in spain and the run that he had defeating nadal in clay in madrid incredible like he talked about it alcaraz said like this is a dream come true this is crazy like i think on the camera he wrote like que pasó or something like that like what happened like i can't even believe this just happened he follows that up beating the number one player in the world djokovic and then he follows that up just embarrassing zverev the defending champion of madrid in straight sets just bullying him in the finals just completely like it looked like they didn't even belong in the same in the same court like they like if you play pickup it looked like he was like a 6.0 player and and zverev was barely learning how to hold the racket like it was it was night and day it did not it looked like zverev deserved to be on the same court as alcaraz and if you have if you guys have forgotten alcaraz has just turned 19 years old which is insane for him to be doing this at 19 years old he's the youngest second youngest to win two masters 1000 at the age of 19 the sky's the limit for this kid and he's basically the favorite for Roland Garros the, the books were making him the favorite I think it, it should change after Djokovic after the level that Djokovic showed today against Felix but nevertheless Alcaraz is a monster he's not just the future he's the present and I'm so I'm so pumped to see him like go into a, ma- a major as one of the favorites this is the first time he's going to go into the ma- into a major as one of the favorites and I think he's ready for it. He seems like he has his head on strong. Like, he, he has a great support team. Um, he's humble. He, he's talking about how he, he wants to buy a car. And his mom and his parents were basically telling him to, like, chill out and, like, wait a little bit. And I, little stuff like that just goes to show that it lets me know that he has, a, like, a good support system. That, you know, he has people that really look out for him, really care for him, being there and, like, guiding him. And sometimes that's all you need. Like, Sometimes there's a lot of people that have had talent. There's a lot of people that have had early success, not just in tennis but in other sports. And they just have they don't have the support system. They they have a bunch of yes men around them. They don't have family there to look out for them. And then you just see as as soon, as fast as they came up, they go right back down. But it looks like Alcaraz has a great team around him. It looks like his family is looking out for him. And not just that, it also looks like you know the greats are looking are shining down looking down on him and and they're rooting for him like Nadal has openly spoken about how he's super proud of Alcaraz and how he's going to lead this next generation of Spain players into the future Djokovic Djokovic has said great stuff about him it looks like everyone on tour pretty much likes him it's very after the match I think he said he reminded him of of a younger him but (laughs) dude Alcaraz is night and day better than than Zverev he completely schooled Zverev. Zverev was honestly he, he had a rough start to the season two, but he got to the final Madrid. He's now in the semifinals of Rome, so he's not he's not having that bad of a season. Um, he's definitely turning it around right now. And for for Alcaraz to just completely like wipe the floor with Zverev, that's incredible. After beating like after beating Nadal and Djokovic, I was afraid there might be a letdown. Like. Like, that's just two back-to-back, like, highs. Like, the adrenaline, the serotonin this guy must have felt after doing that is, like, ridiculously high. And for him to not have a letdown playing Zverev, like a regular, like, just good player, shows, like, that composure that Akra has already has at 19 years old. So, 
it's it's crazy. Like I said, he's he's not just the future of tennis; he's the present, and he's gonna go into Roland Garros as clearly one of the favorites, along with Djokovic, maybe like Rude, a clay specialist, and hopefully Nadal if he's able to recover from his foot. But like I said, like every time I do one of these about Akras, it just seems like I'm just complimenting the kid, and like there's nothing but good stuff to be said about him. But he's he's really like just class. He's class for a 19 year old. He's class for like a 25 year old in their prime, and he just seems to have like a great character. So I'm rooting for Akras, man. I, I'm I'm an Akras fan for sure, and I would not be surprised if he win Roland Garros. The NFL released a schedule yesterday on Thursday, May 12th, and 13 teams have the maximum of five primetime games. Those teams are the Bills, the Bengals, the Broncos, the Buccaneers, the Chargers, the Chiefs, the Cowboys, the Eagles, the Packers, the Patriots, the Steelers, the Rams, and the 49ers. So clearly these are the teams that the NFL has picked to be their marquee teams, the teams that deserve the highest billing, the teams that are going to drive the ratings. And for the most part, I agree with all 13 teams. The Bills, we know what the Bills have done the last few seasons. It's basically this next few seasons for the Bills are going to be Super Bowl or bust. Bengals just made the Super Bowl. Um, Broncos, they just got Russell Wilson. Uh, We'll see what happens with Jared Judy. Uh, He just got arrested. We'll see what happens with that. But the Broncos, I think the NFL is banking on the Broncos to be good this year with Russell Wilson. The Buccaneers... Brady's team, easy explanation. The Chargers, they had some great primetime matches this last year against the Chiefs, against the Raiders. So it makes sense. They have Justin Herbert, probably the best young quarterback in the league. Chiefs with Patrick Mahomes. The Cowboys are America's team. The Eagles, they just traded for A.J. Brown. They have a fun team. They made the playoffs last year. They have that NFC East favoritism that seems to get a lot of NFC East teams a lot of primetime games. So that one kind of makes sense. The Packers with Aaron Rodgers, 13-3 and three back-to-back seasons, and I think 13-4 and four last year, so makes sense. Patriots, Steelers, those two are a little iffy. We'll get back to those. The Rams, defending champions, makes sense. The 49ers, we'll see what they do with Trey Lance or Jimmy Garoppolo. They have, if they stay healthy with Mike, I mean Kyle Shanahan, they should be a marquee team again. Um, so that that makes sense. They have they've had a you know good couple last years, or they have a good history the last five years of being a marquee team. So I could I could see that one too. The Steelers and the Rams, those those I mean not the, the Pages and Steelers. Those are the ones where it's like okay the Steelers, Mitch Trubisky looks like he's going to be the starting quarterback going into the season. Like do we really need to put Mitch Trubisky five times in prime time slots like or. They just after their quarter, their rookie quarterback. Like, do we do we really need to see like that team five times on prime time? Could it have could they have gone to a more deserving team? Maybe, but it is the Steelers. It's a historic team. They've never had a losing season with Mike Tomlin, so I could kind of see why the Patriots too. They had a bounce back year last year. It looks like Bill Belichick has his guy with Mac Jones. You know, he hit the gritty at the Pro Bowl. He looks like you know he has a little bit of personality. The Patriots have, you know, they're the dy- they're the most recent dynasty. They're a marquee team just by the name. So I guess that makes sense. But the Patriots and the Steelers, I can see these teams having, you know, um, one of those games, one of those primetime games where it's like, okay, like, why is this a primetime game? Or if it's later in the season, like, okay, like, let's flex these teams out. 
and put a real marquee matchup into these time slots if it's like Sunday Night Football. But Patriots and Steelers, hopefully they prove me wrong and hopefully they show why they got five primetime slots. But for the most part, I think the NFL got it right. All the other teams are marquee teams. They either have an elite quarterback or they've been really successful in the last few years or they just have a very large fan base or they play in the NFC East like the Cowboys and the Eagles and they they get that NFC East favoritism. But what do you guys think about the NFL schedule release? Obviously, it's it's like a holiday. It's like the last step before the season starts. The draft is over. Free agency is pretty much over. A lot of, you know, the offseason hype is over. The contracts have been signed. Contracts, there's been trades. There's been players resigned. There's been a lot of speculation of other trades going on. The schedule release kind of marks one of the last hurdles that we have to hit before the season starts. So it was fun. It was fun. It was fun seeing the release. It was fun seeing all these primetime games. I am a Chargers season ticket holder, so it was nice seeing them having all these primetime games, having all these marquee matchups. If you guys need a ticket for the Chargers, you know, let me know. I, they are for sale. And uh, but yeah, let me know what you guys think. Also, the Chargers did have a very funny video uh, with their schedule release. They just made an anime video, and they poked fun at you know Urban Meyer. They they did a nice edit with the Raiders, looking like like Buccaneers, looking like you know Raiders out at sea. Um, they took a shot at Antonio Brown. It was just a fun video. There there was other teams that had very fun videos too, but the Chargers definitely took the cake on that one. If you guys hadn't seen it, I'll put the link somewhere in the description. But overall, what are you guys looking forward to? I know everyone looks forward to the schedule release, um, not just because you get to see what what games, what team you're, you're going to play, and what weeks and. You look at your bye week and all that stuff, but people travel. People like going to these games. I know um, I'm going to definitely catch a game or two this season, and I'm a season ticket holder for the Chargers, but I don't know if those are the only games I'm going to go to. I don't really I don't really have a, like a, that connection to the Chargers anymore. I kind of just bought them on a whim. I, I live in San Francisco now, so I'm kind of trying to check out Levi's Stadium too. We'll see. The 49ers do have five primetime games, so I might have to catch one of those. But yeah, it's it's just it's just fun that the schedule is out. I know a lot of people. I, I know a lot of Raider fans. I know a lot of them are planning their trips around Vegas to see the Raiders. They have some good matchups too over there in Las Vegas. So it's just a fun time. The schedule release is always a fun time. I know I have a friend in New York that likes to travel and go to games too. I know she's definitely planning some trips around the schedule release. So it's just it's a jolly good time. I think the this latter part of the. Of the all season is like the funnest the funnest time because it's the draft and everyone feels like a winner after the draft. Even if you had a shitty draft, you, you convince yourself you're like, nah, we got a gem, we got a steal. Like this this draft was cool, and then the schedule comes out and you're like, okay, and like boom, let's let's plan this trip, let's go to these games, or like you know, let's 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 have a little barbecue for the Sunday night football game. This one's gonna be dope. It's just a good time. I, I'm I'm glad the schedule's out. Gonna plan some trips around it. Let me know what you guys think about the schedule. Who deserved more primetime games? Who deserved less primetime games? The Lions were the only team that did not have at least one primetime game. They're the only team with zero. And it makes sense, man. It's the Lions. It's, the Lions are going to Lion. And uh, hopefully for their sake, they, they have a good season. And maybe next year they'll get at least one. Tom Brady has secured another bag. 10 years, $375 million to be the commentator analyst for Fox once he hangs it up. Are we surprised? This man, Tom Brady, just is is a winner at life. He's a winner at the NFL level. He's a winner with like the wife he has. 
He's a winner with all his business ventures, TV12, his his documentary, Man in the Man in the Arena was a hit. And now he secures the biggest bag ever for a commentator slash analyst. Ten years, three hundred seventy five million. This man Brady is just he's winning at life. Like there's nothing else you could say. Brady knows how to do life. Like he has the playbook on life and he's getting thirty seven point five million dollars per year. Aikman and Romo are getting 36 per year combined. And they're two of the highest paid guys in the business, if not the two highest paid. So it just goes to show what Fox thinks about Brady, what they think he could bring to the table. And I think he's going to be great on TV. I think his personality has really shined once he left the Patriots. Like, he already had like a little bit of personality when he was with the Patriots. Once he left them, he just has completely shined and like his... His social media game's on point. His interviews has been great. It looks like he let his hair loose once he left the Patriots. He went from being robotic to actually being Tom Brady. And I think his insight's going to be great. He's obviously one of the smartest, one of the most cerebral quarterbacks of all time. And I think quarterbacks have had a great time transitioning into the media. I'm looking at Manning, who's been amazing. Both of the Manning brothers, Eli and Peyton, have been great. I think they're doing great stuff with ESPN. And the Manning cast has been amazing. Drew Brees, I think this was his first season with NBC on Sunday Night Football. He's been great. Kurt Warner has been great for NFL Network. Even Mark Sanchez as a commentator has been amazing as a guest on morning shows. He has a lot of great insight. He's he's I see him going on the herd and he's been like great on TV. So quarterbacks have a good history of just shining post post their NFL career. And I think Fox knows that. And Brady in of itself, he's gonna he's a machine. He's gonna drive views, he's gonna drive like clicks. He's an enigma and for Fox to secure him is just shout out to Fox for being ahead of the game. Like they're losing Aikman, I think to Amazon or one of these guys. And to have Brady locked up, I think that's that's important. And I think kinda like how we're seeing wide receiver contracts just blow up. I think Brady signing this ten year three hundred seventy five million dollar contract with Fox I think that's I think this bubble or this this job market might just explode too. Like who's who's next to retire? Like Matt Ryan, he, he, I don't know how how good his personality is or, you know, I think maybe even Philip Rivers or somebody like that should be looking like, "Damn, should I should I stop coaching these high school kids and go into the TV game?" Like obviously Brady is like the GOAT, so that's why he's driving these numbers, but there, there's money to be had by other networks, and Amazon's getting in the game. Apple might be getting into the game. Like there's, there's going to be a lot of money to be thrown at these, you know, big marquee players retiring and going into TVs. But shout out to Brady, man. He's winning at life. He he has the playbook on life, man. He's killing it. Like every venture that he has, he's pretty much killing it. So i've kind of learned to stop hating on brady and just appreciate the man for what what the greatness that he eludes and just it's just spewing out of him so shout out to brady you once again man you're killing it at life and shout out to you 10 years 375 million that's insane shout out to tom brady and to wrap it up jokic wins his back-to-back mvp he's a two-time mvp winner he had gaudy numbers one more time. He had 27.1 points, 13.8 rebounds, 7.9 assists. So by no means is he not deserving of this award. All the advanced metrics show that he's had one of the best, if not one, 
the most statistically best seasons of all time. But those same stats also say that he's one of the best defenders in the league. And it doesn't take too much Jokic tape to know, to see that he's not one of the best defenders in the NBA. Especially if you see him in the playoffs and how teams attack the Nuggets. It's like, okay, these numbers could tell the story. They could help us gauge who's good in the NBA and who's not. But you can't just look at the numbers and assume who's good, who's not, who's having a historical season. Because if you did, like I said, Jokic, he is one of the best players in the NBA. And he might end up being one of the best players ever, like top 20. But he's like the, the numbers are saying that he had like the best season ever. And he's a top five defender in the league. And that's just not true. And then you see his team getting bounced in the first round, like on back-to-back years, or second round and first round this year. Second round last year, first round this year, something like that. And you, you're just like, it leaves a bad taste in your mouth. And then you see that the Nuggets were the sixth seed, and it leaves another sour taste in your mouth. And then you see Giannis just racking up 40-point games in the in the playoffs, playing without his co-star Middleton. You know, that game just ended and they're going to go seven against the Celtics in round two. But you just, it's just, it just doesn't feel fair that like Jokic and now Giannis have the same amount of MVPs. And we clearly could see that Giannis is better. And he's, he had an amazing season himself. And his team is going deeper into the playoffs and they had a higher seed. And I don't know. It just, it just feels a little off knowing that Jokic. Nikola Jokic has two MVPs, and Shaq only had one, and Kobe only had one, and it's like, that's just crazy. That's just crazy, in my opinion. I don't know if I'm the only one that feels this way, but I don't, I'm pretty sure I'm not, because I've been on NBA Twitter, and it seems like there's a lot of people that think this way, too. And for my money, I think I had Antetokounmpo number one, I had Embiid number two, and I had Jokic number three, and if I'm being honest, there was, there was like a gap, like... There were some games where Giannis just completely showed out against like the best teams in the NBA, against the Nets, against the the Philly uh, Sixers. There's some other good games he had against some West teams where you're just like, okay, that was a dominant performance. That should definitely like increase his MVP like consideration. And obviously, Jokic had some good games too. And you know, Murray wasn't available the whole season, so Jokic did do a lot of the heavy lifting. And th- like I said, the advanced numbers are saying that Jokic should have clearly been the MVP. But like I said, he was the sixth seed. He was the sixth seed. So it just it leaves a sour taste in my mouth. And then you see what the other guys are doing in the playoffs, and it's just like, come on. But like I said, Nikola, jo- Nikola Jokic played a Warriors team that was clearly a way better team, and he, he still put up numbers. And he you know didn't get swept when it looked like he was going to get swept. So you got to give him a little bit of credit, but... I don't know, it just leaves a sour taste in my mouth that Nikola Jokic now has two MVPs and Shaq and Kobe had two combined. And, like, I think Nikola Jokic is going to have a great career. He's still young. I think he's, like, 27 years old. He has a lot of, you know, a lot of thread left in those tires. He's going to build, continue to build his resume. But when it's all said and done, like, he's, I don't think he's going to pass Shaq or Kobe all time. But now he has these two MVPs. So there's going to be an argument to be had when his career is over that he was better than these guys. And as a number one option, I don't think he will be. And I think Jonas should have had three by now. And this looks like it's the Jonas era. And now with Jokic winning two MVPs, there's, there's going to be people that have an argument that's like, oh, this, this is the Jokic era, especially if 
you know, some superstar signs with the Nuggets for some odd reason, and they make a, you know, if they make a run next year to the playoffs or in the next couple of years, and he ends up with a ring, two MVPs in a ring, like, is this is this the best player of this generation? And I don't think he's gonna, you know, get get to that level, or he's he doesn't deserve to be in that consideration. Kind of like he is a top five player in the NBA, but back to back MVPs seems like a lot. But like I said, those numbers are amazing: twenty seven points, thirteen rebounds, damn near fourteen, eight assists, gaudy numbers by all means. And he's I don't know, I'm just I'm torn apart that. I think even B deserved it over him with all the drama that was going on with Simmons. Um, traded a bunch of the pieces to get Embiid and be, I mean, to get Harden. Harden was clearly not Harden. We've seen how Harden flamed out in the playoffs, and, and Embiid carried that team to the playoffs. Played with a broken face, messed up hand, fucked up hand, and it, I don't know. This this MVP left a very sour taste in my mouth. Like it just felt like it should have been Giannis, and if not Giannis, it should have been Embiid. And if not in beef, then there's something wrong with the award because it should have been one of those two. But like I said, the advanced metrics clearly said Jokic was the best player this year. And I think the voters, you know, kind of ran away with those numbers because it wasn't really that close, if I recall correctly. Um, from the final numbers, let me look them up real quick. Yeah, so the final point tally is 875 points for Jokic, 705 for Embiid, and 595 for Giannis. They were the only three players that that received first-place votes. And out of those first-place votes, Jokic ran away with it with 65 first-place votes. And to Embiid, only 26. So, you know, they the voters spoke, spoke up for Shirley. They picked Jokic. He was clearly the winner. So, you know, shout out to Jokic. Like I said, those those numbers that he put up were impressive. Not just the advanced numbers, but um, like 27, 13.8, 7.9, 58 from the field. That's that's impressive. No one can deny that. Uh, but Embiid, you know, he led the league in points, which is impressive. As a center, he's the first center to do that since Shaq. And all the drama that was going along with the Sixers, we we've kind of noticed that... Um, Greg Popovich, I mean, not Greg Popovich, Doc Rivers is not, like, the best coach. He's been riding off that Celtics championship for the last 10 years. And despite all of that, despite a lot of moving parts around him and beat showed out, Giannis Antetokounmpo, 29.9, 11.6 rebounds, 5.8 assists, 1.8 blocks, 55 from the field, and just showed out in the biggest games on marquee TNT and ESPN games with, you know, the whole NBA community watching. I don't know. It is what it is. Congratulations to Jokic winning back-to-back MVPs, winning two MVPs. And we'll see what happens to this award. I know there's a lot of people that are saying it's losing credibility, but it is what it is. That should do it for this episode of the Hard to Handle Sports Podcast. I hope. Thank you so much if you listen to the end. I hope you have a great rest of your day. And peace. Peace.